You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. The Houndsman XP Podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsmen of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsmen. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. The Houndsman XP Podcast Network is powered by Cajun Lights. All of your lighting needs for hunting can be taken care of at Cajun Lights. They have three models of cap lights. I'm going to run through them real quick. You've got the Rogaroo, which is their high-end light. If you're a competition hunter and you got to find that coon up in a tree and it's all riding on finding that coon, you'll want the Rogaroo on your head. Next is the Bayou. That's a pretty standard light, but it's got packed with features. It's got multiple colors. It's got walking lights. It's got the red, the green, the amber. It's all built in right into that light. And then you have one of my personal favorites, the Micro Gator. The Micro Gator is an ultra lightweight cap light. It's got all the features of a white light, red, green, and amber. I've used this light for everything from finding bear tracks early in the morning to coon hunting at night to working on plumbing in the house changing tires on the side of the road my truck doesn't leave the driveway without a cajun light in it and that light is the micro gator every cajun light is durable made from the highest quality components and it is backed by cajun's top rated customer service check out cajun lights you can go to our website at houndsmanxp.com go to our sponsors page hit that link it'll take you right to cajun lights check them out They got a lot of stuff to offer over at Cajun Lights. My name is Bryce Matthews, and this is the Deep and Lonely Podcast presented to you by Houndsman XP. During this podcast, we will dive deep into what makes the ultimate, top-level, and unmatched extreme competition coon hunter. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of of Deep and Lonely. I am your host, Bryce Matthews, and today we are... With one the of my will be good wrong. time the truth buddies, will be told. we've, we've known each other for a long time now. Second I don't know, to none. five, six years maybe? Pull up your chaps. Probably something like it's that. about something like that. We, we've got a deer hunter, a coon hunter, a trapper, owner of one of the most recognizable dogs in recent years, Wild Bill. Today we're sitting down with my good buddy Shane Smith. Shane, how you doing, buddy? Doing good, Bryce. All right, man. Well, I am glad that we got you on here. I know this isn't easy for you, but there's nothing to it. You just got to walk right through it. It's a it's a breeze in the park. No big deal. We'll be good. All right. So, guys, I know we are right smack dab in the middle of deer season. So, I wanted to get Shane on here because Shane has experience in competition coon hunting, which is what Deep and Lonely is all about. He's got experience in killing big deer. He's got experience in property management. Shane has a lot to offer to bridge the gap between coon hunters and deer hunters since he's done all of it. So Shane, why don't you just start in with a little bit about yourself, where you got started in hunting, a little bit about your background, and we're going to dive into this this coon hunting versus deer hunting debate a little bit. All right. Well, um, I didn't get started coon hunting until I was probably around 16. Um, Had some beagles before then, and uh, one of my buddies had had some coon hounds, so I traded him a beagle for a coon hound. Um, it just kind of took over from there really. And for years, didn't even know anything about competition hunting, uh, purely just coon hunted cause I liked it and started doing a little bit of uh, hunting in the hunts and 
I guess I never probably really got super serious about it, maybe just enough to be dangerous. And I guess that's kind of where I am today on the coon hunting part. Uh, the deer hunting in, um, always done that. We was kind of raised as uh, – Nobody in my family really had hounds or, or coon hunted or knew anything about that. So I was pretty much raised trapping and deer hunting and doing everything. Just basically was taught to be to be able to hunt anything that was, was out there to hunt. Just a general outdoorsman. Yeah, just an all-around. So Ever since I've, I've met you and known you, you've always dabbled in a little bit of everything. And, you know, our listeners might not know, you're, you're one of the big reasons I got into competition coon hunting. Well... I wouldn't tell everybody that. <laughs> <laughs> no, guys, Shane, Shane's been really good to me. Shane was at the very first coon hunt that I ever went to, and I ended up drawing out with him and, you know, got beat, went home, didn't think nothing about it, and, and I ended up getting a message from him on Facebook, and, and we kind of just started talking, and, you know, he was like, look, like I can tell, like, you're into the deer or the coon hunting stuff, and, and you don't really have the dog power that you need to do it. <laughs> just being very blunt and honest about it, as he's always been. I felt pretty bad for you, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> caller, caller came off the dog. We're having to try to find your caller, and and uh, I thought, man, this kid needs some help. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a mess. You know, it was my very first hunt. I was nervous. Like the caller came off the dog, and and Shane had an old dog sitting in his kennel, old Oak Run Shine, yep. and. And he offered to let me hunt her for, you know, that winter and the next year. And, and that dog, that dog taught me a lot, you know, and, and Shane has taught me a lot. He's always been there whenever I need somebody to, to go to for an answer, for a question, pick up the phone, call Shane. Now, sometimes I don't like your answers, <laughs> but you've always got them. Yeah, they're not always right either, probably. No, but man, no, guys, <laughs> Shane's been great to me. So I'm, I'm super pumped to have him joining us on today's podcast. Shane, let's, let's talk about one of your mentors back in the day how did you get started like what what do you see that he did for you as far as coon hunting and deer hunting what did he bring to the table to teach you uh, as far as how they kind of came together yeah. or kind of the change so you know when i started deer hunting it was i mean we're talking back in the 90s uh you know back then you never heard nothing about boone and crockett and these monster bucks and it just wasn't mainstream yet so i had a a good friend of mine and he was older and he was known in the county he back when killing big bucks wasn't cool he routinely had a mature buck every year and he taught me a lot he taught me just kind of the habitats how the the mature bucks are different um there's more to deer hunting than just going out there and killing deer um and I always kind of got a kick out of him because we, I would always coon hunt the same woods that he deer hunted. We had permission, you know, never had issue, and he's still killing all these big deer. Uh, sometime there in the 90s, I'm sure most people remember, they had the, you remember them videos that came out? It was like Monster Bucks 1, Monster Bucks 2. I don't Shane, know I was born that. in 94. Yeah, I forgot. So anyhow... <laughs> I think where a lot of this started, a lot of people remember this. You'd go to Walmart, and on, the, like, the end cap, you would have monster bucks and whatever. So everybody's buying these videos, these guys killing these big bucks. And I would actually go to his house, and we would watch those. And then, you know, hit TV and started becoming popular. Well, then one day, he's like, hey, I don't want you coon hunting any of the woods I deer hunt in. I'm like, wait, what? Why? You know, he's like, oh, it'll mess up my mess up my hunting i thought man i've i've done this for 15 years we've hunted the same woods and now all of a sudden it's going to change that you that change how you kill these bucks and uh so that's when i that's probably when i first started noticing kind of the i guess the clash of the passions or whatever you want to call it you know where where he's trying to like why does this make a difference now you know right so that's something that you noticed just on your end, but there's been several studies done that on this topic. Right. What, what do you know about those? I mean, I think the most popular one is Clemson University did a study, which they're out of South Carolina. And years ago, coon hunters used to always bring this up. I think we about beat it like a dead horse, but 
it's still true. It still happened if you want to follow the science. Um, they actually tagged several deer on a deer hunting preserve and then did a series of 18 coon hunts. And with these coon hunts, they, they would keep track of these deer in a 24-hour be- period before the hunt. And then the coon hunts lasted from when it got dark till midnight. Then they would do a 24-hour, watch these deer for 24 hours afterwards. And in every single situation, even situations where the dogs ran the deer, the deer always returned back to their same habits within a 24-hour period. Uh, Kind of the funny thing I get about that one is the way they got these deer radio collared is they netted them off of feeders came in and put the collars on them and everything and the deer still went right back to their main to their habits to what they always did yeah so if there was something that was going to spook them and, and make them tuck tail and run you would think that would be it i mean that's pretty traumatic yeah i mean i've seen these nets they they've like little rockets that they hit a button and they go off and all these deer underneath this net and a bunch of people go running in and they're they're uh of course they sedate them and then they put the collars on them and stuff but you know of, of all the things that happened even they didn't leave the world because of that right so do you know when this happened like was it summer fall winter like are there differences in in the deer movements in those times of the year there is and in, in this study i i can't be 100 percent sure i want to say that they did it in deer season because they was trying to that was the purpose of the study was to see what the effects of coon hunting versus deer hunting was and if it affected harvest numbers. Um, I don't, don't quote me on that, but I think they did it then. Um, you know, deer habits do change, uh, summer, fall, winter, uh, you know, a lot of times in the summer comes the does are generally going to grab the best habitat. Um, the bucks kind of get kicked out to their little patches or ditches or whatever. Um, cause, and they do that so that they can have the best habitat for raising their babies. Then, you know, September, October, I mean, them bucks will still cruise through there, but the bucks they're in bachelor groups. So they're going to start coming back into those areas. And, uh, you know, then the bachelor groups are going to split up, which, has just happened here not too long ago. Some might, you might see a few together. And then they start prepping where they're getting ready. About the time they get hard horned, they're, they're getting ready for the rut. And then, then it's game on then, I guess. <laughs> right. So, so you say, you know, the does are taking the best habitat. They're kicking the bucks out <clears throat> to, to wherever else is left. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference? Like do mature bucks, do they hang out in certain in different places during the day or during the night? Do you think there's a difference in where they're hanging out? Yes and no. I mean, a deer, ha- a, a mature buck, which mature bucks are definitely different than just deer in general. I mean, they've, they've got a place during the day that I'm going to say they like, they're going to like to bed. They're going to like to hang out. Um, part of the way I hunt these is, with trail cameras it makes it a lot easier you try to catch that buck uh in the morning while it's still dark find out what direction he's going because generally it's going to be pretty close to where his bedding area is that he's going to spend his daylight hours um you hear a lot about bucks going nocturnal i don't think that's necessarily true i think the mature bucks just they still get up and move they have to I think deer have to get up every two or three hours and eat. So they're still up moving, but they kind of hang close to an area, I guess. And at night they may roam. They do, they get out, go around. And that, that depends on the time of the year too. Yeah. Okay. So a couple, couple weeks ago, might've been last week, I was out coon hunting and had two dogs treed, walked in and there was a nice eight point bedded down. Mm Mm-hmm. No world beater by any means, but he was a nice, respectable deer. And I took a video of that buck laying there, just looking around, and you could hear dogs treat on both sides of him. Did not affect that deer from what I could see. I posted that on a couple of outdoor pages on social media, and boy, oh boy, did it stir the pot. Oh, yeah, you'll get them going. So do you think that deer are 
Do you think they feel, I don't know what the word, safer, more secure under the cover of night? Do you think that if that would have been midday, do you think that buck would have still laid there? I, I doubt it. Um, they do. Animals in general, and deer are considered a nocturnal animal. Animals in gen- general, under the cover of darkness, uh, they're just more calm. And I don't care if it's deer. I don't care if it's coyotes or anything. I mean, there's a reason why most people go coyote hunting at night and get them come across the fields. I mean, they actually feel more comfortable coming in at night to your calls. Uh, could be a different scenario in the daytime. And deer are the same way. And, and a lot of that's just a learned behavior that, hey, there is much out there at night. It's going on. Right. So, I mean, like I said, I just thought it was pretty interesting that, you know, myself as primarily a coon hunter, I'm trying to make the case and the argument that, look, my dogs aren't messing with your deer. And, you know, you've got the primary deer hunters like, yeah, well, what did that, what happened 15 minutes after you left? Did, did your scent screw up where he was bedding down? Did the dogs running around screw up where he was bedding down? And it, it does, doesn't seem like there's a lot of leeway or give and take on that. You know, there's not. Um, a lot of that is, of course, you have, you have a lot going on there. Did the dog screw up that deer? I mean, I seen that video. He was he was a decent deer, but he wasn't really a mature deer. Um, as far as leaving scent, I mean, if a deer, every time a deer smelled a human scent, it took off and left the world, they would do nothing but run their whole lives. I mean, these, these deer smell humans day in and day out. And I think they learn to associate like you and the dogs and the scent that was involved is, is, is for that instance, I guess you could say. Right. So when can coon hunters mess up deer hunting? Like when can they shift a buck's territory? Um, the, all bucks are different. Um, when mature bucks, I assume you're talking about mature deer. Yeah. You know, a mature duck, a mature buck, they all have their own personalities, I guess. Kind of like your dogs. Um, you know, you've got some dogs that'll go out there and the worst thunderstorm that ever happened will, will take off and they just keep hunting through it. And you've got some that'll run back and want to jump in the dog box. Uh, the mature deer are the same way. Um, I'd say you're not going from my experience. And I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm talking here is me coon hunting and chasing these deer. You're not going to mess them up if you're hunting on somewhat of an occasion. Now, if you're hunting there every single night over and over again, and you are just blowing through what they are comfortable with, they're probably going to, they may move out, but they're not going to go far. So, I mean, you know, you talk uh, to other coon hunters and like I, we say it over at Okie Pinocchio on the ceremony a lot. Man, this area has been dogged out. It's been dogged to death. That just means everybody's in there running it night in, night out. How many nights in a row do you think in a woods, if somebody's trying to actively trophy hunt in there, how many nights in a row do you think a guy can, can coon hunt it without screwing up the deer? I think a lot of that depends on your habitat and the area. So... The first thing a deer is going to do when you go in there and make noise or whatever, uh, they're going to just get up and go to a spot just out of your way. They Or they're just going to bed down tight and watch you. Um, if you're in a little small 10, 15-acre woods, I mean, I mean, you could probably still hunt that thing a couple times a week and you ain't going to bother them. Uh, someplace like like what you're talking or one of the reservoirs or something, you can hunt that place every night. You're probably not going to affect that deer. Um, it's probably your smaller patches, more secluded little spots there. And a lot of it depends on if that deer has grown up from time he's born being around the dogs. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be saying. I always say you're training your deer, you know, so. Yeah, and I've heard you mention that several times. So let, let's get into that. Let, let's start out by if you are a deer hunter, you're a coon hunter, and you just got permission for a new piece of property. Are you going to coon hunt that piece of property while you're getting ready to deer hunt it? Brand new piece of property. What are you going to do there? Most time, if I'm trying to get, if I'm 
got permission on new property is probably because I done found a buck there or seen a buck. Um, if it's October and I'm ready to go hunt that buck, I'm probably not going to turn a dog loose in there. Um, mainly because, you know, he has not been trained, I guess, to, to know how to react to these dogs. And with his personality, I don't know if he's, how he's going to, how he's going to react to this, something new in his life. I'm going to say half of them probably don't care. The other half, he may not want to be there anymore. Now, come April or come spring or whatever, or the day that deer season's over, I'm going to start coon hunting that. And then the following year, I'll coon hunt and deer hunt the whole time. So dive into that a little deeper. Talk to me about training this deer. I've heard you say it to me just in conversation, but like tell the listeners what you mean by that as far as, you know, I guess the deer adapting and learning certain deals. So, you know, all the woods that I deer hunt i coon hunt um some of them i'm hunting three or four nights a week and i've done that for years and i still i mean i'm fairly successful at getting a mature buck every couple years i my my thought on that is them deer are used to me from the time they are born they are fawns um and that can be a whole different conversation whether how many stick around how many don't but regardless the deer in that area have become accustomed not only to me, but probably the sound of my vehicles, just like your dogs know the sound of your vehicle versus somebody else's. They they know the program. I have coon hunted it. They go in just like that buck you had. They may just lay down and watch me. Nine times out of ten, they'll bounce out in the field and watch me. And I get done hunting, they go back to doing what they're doing. Um, I can go in. I can coon hunt that night, go in the next morning, and deer hunt and still feel confident nothing has changed and you know it's just like deer living in the city they have they they have adapted to people they've adapted to different things and if 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 i'm coon hunting these woods every night i I, it's not affecting these deer so so one one thing that i've noticed kind of when i'm coon hunting is that very i would say i wouldn't say very rarely Maybe, maybe four out of 10 times when I'm hunting, do I see a mature buck? The majority of the time I'm seeing does, I'm seeing younger bucks. How, how many mature deer do you think are in an area? Not many. I mean, and and of course we're in Indiana, which really there should be more mature deer around than there is. But I mean, I seen. I think it's. They say there's like one, an average of one mature deer every square mile of habitat. That's not including the ag fields. So that means take all your woods together, and every square mile there's going to be a buck, a mature buck. And when we're talking a mature buck, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Boone and Crockett buck because most mature deer are like 140. You know, um, so. As far as how many's an area and why, there's there's really not many around. Uh, a lot of them reasons is, I mean, they're getting killed. They're just not living that long. Come deer season, they're getting shot. Um, and when I say a mature deer, I, I'm saying anything over three and a half. Um, very few people probably actually, even deer hunters, probably actually even see mature deer while they're deer hunting. I mean, you have the you have your good deer hunters that do, um, and you know, and part of that average. One thing we got to remember about an average is there could be a guy over there that that has done the correct property management, has the food, has the habitat, has the cover. He may be holding two or three of them over there, so that really messes your average out. So there's just not that many out there. Yeah, I know. One thing that frustrated me whenever I was deer hunting a lot and pretty hard was that. You know, I would, I remember two instances where I had nice bucks on camera on my parents' property whenever I would hunt back home. And I would hunt those deer specifically. I would let smaller bucks walk. I, I, I was always taught, don't kill anything smaller than what's on your wall. That's just how I was raised. Right. So I would let smaller bucks walk in two different instances. One was a four point and one was a small basket rack eight point. I let them walk. I was hunting fairly close to the property boundary 
within 20 minutes, bam, boomstick goes off. I walk out. What do you know? The other guy hunting the other property is carrying those two smaller bucks out. And, you know, one time I, I tried to talk to him. I was probably 19 or 20. It wasn't very old at all. And I was like, hey, you know, you know, what, what, what's your goal over here? Are you just hunting for meat? What are you doing? Because I'm trying to hunt these nice mature deer and let them grow. And he just looked me dead in the eyes. He was like, can't eat the antlers, bud. <laughs> and that was it. So do you think that has a big factor in the way that deer are growing? Um, there's many factors in that. And I'll just speak for Indiana. Uh, when I was growing up, we had, we could kill two bucks when I was younger, a year. Um, you know, we didn't have big bucks around here to speak of. We had mature deer, but as far as Boone and Crockett deer, it just wasn't even heard of. They, they changed that to where you was only allowed to kill one buck, which I mean, just skyrocketed the amount of mature deer bigger deer that was around here it helped that out um but yes it's, and there's a lot of i want to say a lot of your deer are getting killed at two and a half at two and a half a lot of these deer i mean some of them are sporting a pretty good rack um i, I probably 80 percent of the people out there is not going to pass them up so yeah people not passing them up that's definitely going to make a difference you're never going to get anybody on board and I'm not saying you have to. I mean, I've always taught my kids, you know, you shoot the deer you're happy with. I don't care if it's a four corn or if it's a 200-inch deer. If that deer is what you're happy with at the end of the day, that's what you take. So, Yeah, and I mean, everybody's been raised differently and taught differently. So do you think that with the amount of technology and everything that's in everybody's fingertips now, you can scout out a piece of property sitting at your desk at work on the computer. I mean, you can look at a lot of detail. Do you think there's a lack of woodsmanship these days and like people understanding how the outdoors really work? Oh, absolutely. That's probably the biggest problem I see when you try to, I won't say argue, when you try to say have a discussion um, amongst hunters is, is they really just don't understand. Um, you know, I was raised, I mean, I was running my own trap line when I was probably 14 years old. Um, you know, even I can look back and my kids at 14 thinking about letting them go out on their own run a trap line. It kind of makes me wonder. But, um, I mean, I was raised in the woods. I spent all my time in the woods, didn't have games, didn't have phones, didn't have any of that. And you learn how animals react. You learn their habits. You learn everything that goes on out there. And I think now, you know, you've gotten, uh, the Michael Waddell's of this world and somebody sitting at home in their chair and everything they see on TV, every podcast they hear is these big bucks and they're sitting and seeing all these big bucks and letting these other ones go by. And, um, the thing is, is a lot of them guys, whether it's them or who's guiding them, I mean, they know how to deer hunt. They're woodsmen. Um, Sometimes when you go, a lot of these guys, they go out to the woods, they see a deer trail set up a tree stand and they're not seeing anything and they want to blame everything else, except, blame it on everything else except for themselves and their experience, I guess. Yeah. One thing that I have definitely even just seen in myself is I honestly feel like 10 years ago, I could have got through the, you could have dropped me off and I could have got wherever it was, dropped me off. I could have found my way back probably easier than what I could now because I have become very dependent on the Garmin. I, I'm looking at the Garmin all the time. And that's just what it is. Like, you know, some, sometimes I'll put it away and like, all right, how did you get in here? How did you get out? And I still get turned around and twisted up, but I, it's just so easy to look use the technology that's at your fingertips. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, trail cameras have made a huge difference and, um, I was raised old school. I mean, I remember our, my, my grandpa made it a point to teach us, number one, how to navigate, how to use a compass. But just, I was thinking about this early. Uh, one time we was we was fishing uh, down at the river, and grandpa used to set up situations. And there he says, hey, he goes, I got to run back to town, which was probably 20 minutes away. He goes, I forgot something. He no more and left, and I couldn't have been 12 years old probably. And this storm came in. I'm talking high winds, thunderstorm, just like crazy. So 
I didn't think nothing about it. I, I just ran over there. I built me a little shelter and I kind of tucked myself on down the end. Of it. And, uh, about the time it was over, I mean, the second it was over, here comes grandpa walking back up and he looks at me, goes, you're kind of dry. I said, yeah, I had to get in that shelter over there and didn't say a word. We went back to fishing. Well, as I got older and talking to my uncle, he used to do the same thing to my uncle. I'm pretty sure he probably never left. And that was just, he knew the storm was coming. That was a setup. So, you know, the things that's taught, um, you know, but then now I even catch myself using the Garmin all the time and you're, you're walking through the woods and you're not, I mean, even me, I'm not paying attention to what's going on. I'm just going to my dog. And then when I get my dog, I'm looking at my Garmin. I only know what direction I came from and I use that Garmin to get back. So it, it has changed people a lot. Yeah, that's that's kind of the point I was getting at. It's like you know, just you you become dependent on it. It's a crutch. It's right there. So what would happen if it died? What would happen if you dropped it and lost it? You know, one thing that I think is interesting is, heck, I haven't I haven't hardcore deer hunted in probably five years now. I mean, I go out and kill a doe about every year, just put some meat in the freezer. But it's pretty easy to do where we live. Like there, it doesn't right. take a lot of work and effort to go out there and kill a doe. No, so. I mean, I don't even call myself like a hardcore deer hunter anymore, but what I do find interesting is to me, like how different the woods look in the daytime versus the nighttime. And I don't, I almost feel like I can navigate better at night than I can during the day. And I don't know if that's just cause like you said, my body is trained cause I'm in the woods at night all the time, but I mean, I go deer hunting and I'm like, I get turned around quick. Yeah. You spend most of your time in the woods at night i mean you're that's what you're accustomed to yeah it's it's definitely interesting so when when are you scouting for deer hunting like when when are you doing that do you do that while you're coon hunting a lot if you're out there in the nighttime anyways is that when you're scouting for deer i do i mean i scout all the time but when i'm (laughs) i will make special trips to my woods or any woods while i'm coon hunting as i cut that dog loose then i may be like hey i'm gonna see what's going on you know usually there's a scrape or or usually these deer run this i'm gonna see what's on what's over here um might set up a trail camera might do all, anything like that and i do that while i'm coon hunting there out of the ranger i just feel of anything i can do that's the least amount of impact because them deer already know i'm there um they're used to me being there they're used to the dogs um so that's when i do a lot of my scouting so do you think that by you being in there all the time, your dog's in there, do you think that the scent that you're leaving behind has any, do you think that your scent or the dog's scent affects the deer? Even if you don't see them, you're not looking, you're not seeing the deer that night. Do you think that affects them in the next couple of days? It don't affect them. The only effects that I can, that I've ever seen, um, you know, deer, and like I said before, deer, when they smell somebody that's there, they're not... <laughs> They ain't just smelling somebody and they're going to be two sections over. It just don't work that way. I mean, most of the time they're going to smell you. They're going to bound off a little bit, look back, and then walk off and go around wherever that scent was. Um, you know, the only effect I've ever seen is if I've, like, one before I've coon hunted really late, like into the morning. And I don't do the same more when I was younger. And then a couple hours later, I'm back up in my tree stand. Well, I'd walked maybe in front of my tree stand there. Well, I've had deer come in, smell where I actually had walked, and, you know, they they, they moved off and didn't. It kind of made them a little nervous. Um, never had that effect now. Most of the time I'm done by 1 o'clock. So um, I can't say I've had any issue with that here recently. I mean, I think if it's pretty fresh, they're going to, they're going to get a little nervous. They're still going to be there tomorrow or the next day. So, yeah. So you've been in the game a lot longer than I have. What have you seen that's different now versus I don't know back in the '90s when your mentor was teaching all this stuff and he was killing big deer? Do you think that land is getting harder to hunt on permission? Do you think dogs are going a lot further now? Trail cameras, like, what are you seeing? What's the differences between when you were starting and growing up and and now? Uh, the biggest difference is that deer hunting became, I guess you say commercialized or 
super popular. And when that happened, um, deer hunting became more important than any other form of hunting out there. Uh, it wasn't like that growing up, you know, we, we'd all, it was all the same, you know, the guys that you met up and ate breakfast with would talk about deer hunting and coon hunting and everything else in general. So, so it has created a group, I guess, of people that's disconnected. I say disconnected from reality. Um, but they're just kind of disconnected from, from everything else. Um, you know, and then coon hunting has changed to where back in you could, you could turn four dogs into a eight acre patch. They'd all get treed together on one tree. You go get them, you get out. Now them rascals, you know, they're splitting up. I mean, they're, they're hit a fence over, they're covering country. They take you into territory you have not been in or may not supposed to be in. So it kind of, it kind of started a perfect storm for coon hunters to deer hunters. Um, now you're in places you're not supposed to be. There's cell cameras that let them guys know you're there. Um, you know, the dogs are going farther. Um, it's just, it's like I said, it's the perfect storm for them, two groups of people to not get along. Right. So what, what do you think we can do to bridge that gap? Because I know there's a couple years ago that, um, Bashman and I were hunting this woods and we literally called it the camera woods. We got in there one night. It was a place we, we weren't supposed to be in. We had permission for the property next to it. Dogs got over there. Walking to the dogs, we counted over 20 cell cameras. I can't tell you how many times that picture got took. I have never got an issue. I never got a phone call or anything like that from anybody. But I know that I was on there. I mean, they, there's no way they didn't catch me. There right. was, we, we counted tw- over 20 cell cameras. That's not including the ones we didn't count because you don't see all of them. Yeah. You know, so what can we do to bridge that gap? What can us coon hunters do if our dogs get over where they're not supposed to be how do we have that conversation with a landowner who comes out and is a little aggravated? Well, I think, and I'll, I'll just give a couple examples. I mean, one thing I do, if I gain permission of to, and around here we have sections, and then they're, they're, they're usually separated by ag fields. So if I gain permission in this section of woods, then I go to all, I try to hit all the surrounding owners of the woods around there. Um, and as you know, permission is hard to get and you're going to get turned down more than you're going to get said yes. But it, what it does is it introduces me to that landowner. Um, if they tell me no, the first thing I ask is I said, Hey, I've got permission on so-and-so's property over here. There is an opportunity. I'll do my best to keep my dog over there, but there, there could be a chance that he may get over here on occasion. How, how do you want me to handle that when that happens? And I said, you know, do you want me to call you? I said, it could be one o'clock at night or whatever. Every single time I've done that, they've all said, no, just do your best. If the dog gets over there, just go in and get it. And then what I usually do is I give them my phone number, my contact info. And I said, look, if, if you're wake up in the middle of the night and you see lights and you want to know if it's me or not, I said, call me, text me. And it just, it cures the problem of being out there at one o'clock in the morning, like we've all done and sitting on the road going, should I drive up this lane and wake them up or should I try to sneak in here? Well, you know, most of the time you can sneak in there and get out, but sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes they're meeting you at the road. So the other, you know, the other thing as far as deer hunters, I heard on a podcast I was listening to, and and these guys are not fans of, of coon hunters, but they are very good deer hunters. And they manage their property. I mean, they have their passion for deer hunting. It's their property. They invest as much money as, in that as we do in coonhounds. And he made mention that, you know, he he got it. He's Wama's trail camera showed up, and there was it was this was in Kentucky. There was two coon hunters on this uh, on his camera looking at their garments, looking for their dogs. He's what he assumed. And he was not happy about it. And he was making a point on his podcast that he wasn't happy. But the the one thing it hit home is, is here's deer hunters, not a fan of coon hunters. And he's throwing a fit because uh, these coon hunters are on his property. 
and you know, in a way, I kind of, if if I wasn't a coon hunter, I kind of see his point. But he made mention that if these guys would have just called or gotten a hold of him, he'd have been willing to make a plan on how to get into these dogs without disturbing his deer hunt. And they was in what he considered the sanctuary, which is where no, they don't let any people in there for nothing. So, you know, as from a deer hunter, I mean, why can't, and, and I know I'm just talking, probably won't happen, but literally you could have signs out there that said, look, you know, no trespassing, but if emergency or if your dogs get over here, call me at any time. And then, you know, I think if the coon hunters, if we could somehow get on that page and form that relationship, because as, as mad as he was, as much as he was against coon hunting, he still said, if they would have called me, we could have sat down and come up with a plan to get their dogs. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know that that's a great plan, I guess, in theory, but I think that coon hunters need to get along with coon hunters before they worry about getting along with deer hunters. And that's big. And I say that because I ran into a situation here in the last couple of weeks where I had permission from a landowner, knocked on the door, went in. The guy invited me into his house. We sat in his living room and talked. He told me stories from whenever he was a kid, you know, about how he used to coon hunt and everything. And he was like, man, anytime you want to go back here, go run your dogs. He's come out when I've been running, sat on the tailgate with me and listened to the dogs. Another coon hunter in the same area has permission for that piece of property. And I didn't know this at the time. Well, I was out there coon hunting one night and here they come and they got aggravated because I was hunting a piece of property that they had permission for. So we both had permission. Mm -hmm. We're both legal to be there. But for some reason, there was a disconnect. Like, you know, it wouldn't have been, in my opinion, it wouldn't have been that hard to have been like, hey, if I pull up and I see that your truck's here or I hear a dog tree, I'll go on to the next piece of ground. And that would have been it. Right. You know, but there was... I don't know if land is getting that hard to find. If it's getting that hard for coon hunters to find places where they are welcomed, they're allowed to be. And once you get that place, you, you just don't want to let it go. You're like a stronghold. You're like, this is mine and nobody else can have it because I have such a hard time getting permission for anywhere else. That's something that I've ran into recently. And I just, I really struggle with that. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's a struggle. I mean, but. Honestly, I think that's kind of just a it's it's a lot of just a people problem, and I think you get that anywhere you go. I mean, the deer hunters can't get along, the coon hunters can't get along, nobody really gets along. Um, but you're but you're right. I mean, the per, having a hard time to get permission, find woods to hunt, can make you a little greedy at times. Um, you know, and, and it's part of the it's kind of an issue with guides. I mean, that has that has rolled on with that. I mean, we've we've had issues to where we will guide in a hunt and to these places we have permission. Some you have to like call before you go. And then next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call saying that I don't have permission there no more because I keep hunting it without calling them. Well, that puts you in a bad predicament because now you're trying to explain that that wasn't you. And you kind of find out it's the guys that you took there when you was guiding. And, and then it puts a bad taste in the landowner's mouth. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, we got to work together. I mean, there, you can come up with a lot of ideas. In reality, is it ever going to work? Probably not. So, Yeah, I'd, we've got to find something to do because we, we need to, as hunters, take the deer in, out from in front. Take the coon from out in front. As hunters, we've got to find a way to get, get along because people are trying to take take stuff away from us all the time. And, you know, are they coming for coon hunters in Indiana right now? No. But they're coming for the mountain lion hunters and the bobcat hunters out in Colorado. Like, it's a real deal. And if they take them, who's next? You know, if, if we give them an inch, if we give anybody an inch, they're going to take a mile. So I feel like as coon, us coon hunters, speaking from my side of things, and the deer hunters, we've got to find a way to bridge a gap. And I just don't know how to go about that. Because these conversations are hard to have with somebody who doesn't understand both, like yourself. You know what app I use on my phone more than any other app, besides the podcast app, to listen to this here podcast? I use Onyx. Onyx Maps is the most comprehensive mapping system for hunters on the market today. I use it all the time. 
when I was in New Mexico, I was looking at 40,000 acres of ranch that I needed to learn. I flip open Onyx and just start studying, studying the map. When I'm riding trails, I put the tracking app on. It helps me get around in strange country. I could mark water sources, food sources, bear sign, just all kinds of options within Onyx. You need to check out Onyx Maps by going to houndsmanxp.com. Click on the link on our sponsor page. You'll go right to Onyx Maps, and when you check out, enter the code HXP20, and you will get 20% off of your order. Know where you stand with Onyx. Well, I think, you know, coon hunting, I mean, as we've seen posted all over, coon hunting's going mainstream. I mean, it's... (laughs) You know, part of the problem with landowners and people in general, I think a lot of the population still, if you say coon hunter, you're still thinking of this drunken hillbilly sitting out in the woods cutting some cattle fence. Um, I can really see one of the, and, and this is why I'm all for it. It's like, hey, we're, coon hunting's growing. Coon hunting is becoming mainstream, just like, like deer hunting did years ago. I mean, it's going places. And I think once it gets out there in the real world and people actually understand what we do, um, it's probably the lack of understanding that causes the most, the biggest issues. Once they get that understanding, I, I, I truly feel it's going to make life easier. Yeah. One thing that, you know, I thought was interesting the other night, and this is kind of going back to a couple topics ago is me and Nikki pulled into a spot, public ground, um, out on the reservoir <laughs> had a gravel parking lot pulled in and I got out of the truck and I don't know what caught my eye, but something caught my eye and I looked up about 12 foot up in the air and there was a trail camera <laughs> pointing right at the parking lot. So going back to a people thing, do you think that is somebody who's like, they're so hardcore? It didn't, it hasn't been there for a long time. It's just got there right around October 1st deer season. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is somebody who's like, all right, I've got this area scoped out and they've got that cell camera to see who's been in there, what dogs have been in there. Do you, I mean, it's public ground. So what do you think that was for? Because me and her had different ideas on that. I mean, it's hard to tell. And that's where your mind can get you in trouble thinking about things. I mean, it could be, I mean, it could be something as simple as, as this guy lives an hour away and, and he just wants to see if somebody's there hunting before he gets there. That way he don't have to waste a trip. He can go somewhere else. I mean, it could be somebody that's just, you know, got a thorn in their side and they think that that they need to see everything that goes on there. Uh, several different things, I guess. Yeah, it was just something that interesting. It caught my eye. Like I said, my mind went a hundred different ways. And Heck, we spent 30 minutes, her and I, talking about why that trail camera would be there. But do you think that, you know, with, like I said, the way things are changing and evolving, obviously right now there are more podcasts, YouTube channels, TV shows there are more forms of information out there available now than there ever has been. Do you think that it is negatively or positively affecting this clash between deer hunters and coon hunters? And I call it a clash because I feel like that's what it is right now. Uh, I'm going to say it's, ne- I mean, 100% negative because it's it's making everybody out there uh feel like they have to be successful uh you know just like social media you you look on there and a guy shoots a buck i mean a decent eight point buck or something and and uh you know the first thing he says on there is uh you know he's he's he's, uh not the biggest buck and uh whatever makes excuses for shooting that buck I mean, nobody should ever make an excuse for, for doing something they want to do. And it's almost like they have to, you have to succeed. They've made it to where deer hunting makes you have to succeed. And I think that's where a lot of the tensions and things go, where they're trying to eliminate anything that might mess them up, even though they don't know what it is. So, you know, deer hunting is obviously mainstream. Coon hunting is going there. Do you think that there is an opportunity for coon hunters to spin this, for coon hunters to bring something to the table to help out deer hunters? Do you think there's anything that we can do, you know, just just to try and bridge that gap? 
and and offer something to them in order to build a trust and a bond and a relationship? You know, I think as, as coon hunting goes mainstream, like I said before, that's just going to get us out there. It's going to show them who we really are. And you're going to start rubbing shoulders with different people and money talks. And once, once the same sponsors are sponsoring the deer hunting and the, the coon hunting or, or however once we're going to be forced to somewhat come together, whether they like it, we like it or not. Um, I, I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to help. Do I ever think it's going to, the issue ever going to go away? No. Yeah, you know, that's something that I find interesting is like, I don't know. I always go back to bass fishing when I think about sponsorship. You know, you see these guys have their boats wrapped and everything. Their trucks are wrapped and they've got the the fancy shirts with everything on it. Like, what would, I don't even know how to put it. Like, what would a day be like at where a, a coon hunter is sponsored? Like, I'm trying to imagine that. What what, what, is, what would that look like? What Would there be animosity between other groups, like because, like, like you said, these drunken hillbillies have finally caught up to everybody else. Would it be support from everybody else? Like, hey, like you know, they've come from the bottom and now they're here, so we can all band together and and make a positive movement in the outdoor industry and fight off the antis. Like, do you think? I don't know. I just, what would a day like that look like? Right. I mean, I, it's it's going to be both. It'd be pretty cool. I mean, I'll never see it, but there's guys out there I know that w- probably will. Uh, here in the near future but you know you're always going to have the different groups of people um as far as what it look like I, I the only way i can think of right now is you know you think of your nba players versus your college players versus playing basketball down at the park you know um i think the biggest thing that people are going to have to realize is that the people that play at the park are probably never going to be NBA players and you just accept that and you still go home and support the guys that's, or your college team. I mean, and I think that's kind of, as this is changing, I think that's the hardest thing for them to, a lot of people to accept, you know, is, is there are different levels. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still at the park. <laughs> I wouldn't say you're at the park. You might be playing like, like high school ball. Maybe on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so like another thing that I think about a lot is, and I thought about this on the drive over here and we can talk off air on this one, but <laughs> you know, I've always got these crazy ideas. So you've got, Don't we know you've got, you've got deer camps. Okay. You've got duck camps where groups of guys are going together and they're pooling their money to lease out a certain section of land and they're all getting together for however long a week two weeks whatever it is and they're going there they're enjoying camaraderie with each other they have permission for a certain area they can do whatever they need to do on that area to manage it you know why is that not a thing for coon hunters yet why why don't we have a coon hunters camp why are coon hunters not rallying their resources together and leasing some of this private land so that we don't have these issues no i agree and i mean it's very possible and and i think if we was smart uh it's something we would look into the biggest thing is is the clubs are going to have to come back um you know the guys that have these deer camps and these duck camps, I mean, these are groups of guys that have, I guess you could almost say a, a duck hunting club and everybody pitches in and whatever. Well, through the growth of coon hunting, the one thing we have lost is, is a lot of our, uh, support for our clubs in general, which I think it's coming back now some, um, but that, that's definitely, I've said that for years that that needs to happen. I mean, why don't, why don't we get all the club members to pitch in some money and, and go get several leases for nothing more than at least while you have the hunts? I said, that, you know, and then if you're paying for it, well, you could sublease it back to some deer hunters and, and make some money, but you've got control. So, yeah, you know, just like you talked about earlier, you know, as a guide, you've taken people to your places that you have permission for and then they end up back there. If you, if the club would go together, the clubs would go together, lease out six tracts of land, you know, then those are the 
quote unquote club woods and that's where you guide to. Right. You know, that way you're not having that issue with landowner conflict and people aren't going back to places you've taken them and sneaking in there. It, it's just club woods, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's for coon hunters by coon hunters, which, you know, and I, that's possible in a lot of areas, not all areas. I mean, there's some places where this lease and what it costs has gotten out of hand, but I mean, there's places around here you can lease. I think it's, I mean, it's reasonable. Right. So, so we've talked about, you know, what to do if dogs get over on other people's property. We've talked about, you know, we can lease our own property. We can do things like that. Is there anything else that you think that we can do to coexist as hunters? Is there anything else that stands out? What, what can we do? Anything else that we haven't covered already? Man, I mean, just gonna have to figure it out at some point in time with the way coon hunting's grown and deer hunting's not slowing down um you're we're just gonna have to find out i mean i don't know maybe maybe some coon hunters need to go to some of the whitetail banquets and stuff maybe maybe we set up a booth there maybe we got stuff to hand out i think it's it's gonna i think it's mainly that they just got to understand what we actually do yeah that's something that i was thinking about too is like you know the indiana deer and turkey expo convention why is there not a big you know booth set up for the competition coon hunters and like showing them our side of the sport like why are we not going to those things why are we not putting on these fundraising events why like why are we not doing that i mean i think a lot of your coon hunters i mean they're (laughs) they're kind of loners kind of maybe the personality don't fit in with the crowds is what i've seen over the years to where you're not i mean it takes a special person to be a coon hunter and a lot a lot of them people don't want people around so you know yeah and that's something that i failed to see that side of the coin because i am not that person at all i can talk to anybody and make friends with anybody and i'm I'm just i'm very much an extrovert rather than introvert even though you know i do like to spend the time sometimes alone in the woods um so i don't i don't think about that stuff but I do think that we, we need to do more and we need to find a better way of, of bridging that gap with the deer hunters and the coon hunters and educating each other. And, you know, the I know the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, we're working on putting um, an events committee together where we can get some of these people who are members to go to these events mm-hmm. and do that on behalf of the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. So I think there's stuff in the works. Um, just saw a new thing coming out on YouTube, I think. I haven't got all the details yet the the elite handler program right you know it's going to be from what i've gathered a televised youtube televised you know uh spotlight for dog sporting events whether it's coon hunters the bird dogs field trialers stuff like that so i do think we're making our way into mainstream and i think it's exciting yeah it is um you know one way to bridge the gap and uh i mean i'm not trying to i guess pump my own chest here or not but if you could find people similar to me that are routinely you know or or are passionate about deer hunting and passionate about coon hunting and you know your passions coexist within you that's probably the easiest way i mean i i really think at least in my area um you know i've calmed things down around here i don't have the issues that i used to have with coon hunting places that other people deer hunt because I mean, I've shot a 200 inch deer, you know, I mean, I've, I've killed deer that, you know, 150s, 160s, and, and it's not just one, um, by doing that, they, they can never have that argument. You know, it's, it's, I'm a coon hunter. I'm asking for permission to coon hunt and you can't say, well, I want, it's going to mess up my deer hunting because, uh, I, you can't argue with proof, I guess. Right. So. Let, let's round this up and finish this off. Let, tell me the story about that 200-inch deer that you killed because it's a good one. <laughs> I, I like listening to it. I just want to hear it again. I want the listeners to hear it. Oh, that, that, that could take a while. So you, You've got all the time. Go for yeah. it. Tell the story. <laughs> so this deer, the very first time that we laid eyes on this deer is, uh, of course, I went a lot of years. I didn't really hunt much because I'm taking my kids. Wyatt was was 10 years old then he's 18 getting ready to graduate and we're sitting in a stand and and next thing I know I'm looking there's this huge 
typical i say huge i mean he was 170s uh typical buck and he's walking right down there well why it's 10 i think he's hunting with a 410 single shot back then i'm trying to get him lined up on this deer and i just i couldn't i just couldn't get him steady enough he he would never shoot unless he was 100 sure and watch that deer go by and i noticed he had some some funky brow tines there and he was it was a unique rack to where when you seen that deer again you was gonna know it uh that hunt was pretty cool for me because that deer went on down got back in kind of the thicket there and we heard all kinds of commotion well next thing you know this doe comes running right i mean five yards in front of us and there are five bucks that are chasing she was red hot and heat and he's right there with it and she was running around so hard she actually ran head first into a tree and fell down and uh the other bucks were smaller and and Wyatt had he'd plumb lost his mind at that time of course I think I did too so never did shoot anything <laughs> I mean they was just moving around so quick and and so that was the initial when we seen this deer and and I just kind of put him kind of in the back of my mind. Uh, man, this is, this, that's one to watch, you know. Um, uh, the next year, of course, I was hunting my boy again. And I never really kind of forgot about this deer. And through this, me and a, uh, another landowner that, that borders up to that, actually two different, we was always sharing the pictures we get on the camera of this deer. I mean, we got hundreds of pictures of this deer. And... I'm back in my mind. I'm starting to get him figured out just because at the same time that I'm hunting this deer, I'm also trapping this property and hunting this property. And it's so I'm I'm finding spots. Here. So are you coon hunting this the same time you're actively deer hunting it? I will say that the majority of this property did not get coon hunted, but I did coon hunt it. But and I and I kind of just want to be brought up, but I, I trapped it. I was in there all the time. And on top of that, of course, I've got forestry mulcher in business that the landowners uh, loved run four-wheelers. So I put paths all through here that was part of me hunting, and then they would just roll these four-wheelers through here all the time. Um, as far as coon hunting, there's a part of this property that I did coon hunt. Um, actually, I mean, honestly, within 300 yards where I shot the deer. I mean, so... I just want, I don't want to hide nothing. I'll just be completely honest about it. So, um, but lots of activity didn't move him out of there. Let's put it that way. Um, we, uh, I think it was the next year. Uh, my boy ended up shooting. Yeah. He shot a, a really decent 10 point. So it gave me a chance during late muzzler season. Uh, I decided I was going to go try to get this deer. By now he had gotten some non-typical. His brow tines had split. Uh, he was he was a good deer, and I'm pretty, I guess you could say traditional. I mean, I bow hunt with a recurve. I I back then I muzzleloaded when I hunted with a muzzleloader. It was still the percussion cap muzzleloader, and I get up there. It was cold, late muzzleloader, and he virtually come in there at 50 yards. And when I pulled the trigger, I had the slightest hang fire, and it it was just enough for me to drop my gun, my barrel, enough to where I just took the hair off his belly. Uh, he As he was coming in, I actually had pictures of him on my phone coming in. And then, of course, I took pictures of the hair. I should have took it home probably. So I thought, man, that's crazy. And that, that Christmas, my wife went out and bought me an inline muzzleloader because she got sick of hearing me whine about it. <laughs> but... Um, so the next year I'm trying to think how this all went down because there's about five years and I'd found I was finding his sheds almost every year at least one of them um now the next year uh didn't have any luck with him whatsoever then my youngest boy was six and I started taking him hunting and we was sitting in a blind and I honestly, we was, we was right in his territory. We was in a spot that I really didn't think he'd come out, but I mean, he frequented that area and, uh, I brought my gun with me. It was unloaded, sitting in the corner, Bridger sitting there. I'm just out to get him a deer. 
and he's six. So he's playing on the floor of this blind and with Hot Wheels. And I got in his butt because he just kicked the wall, and I'm just kind of giving him a, a little grief about it, saying we ain't going to kill nothing if he keeps making noise. And I look up, and 200 yards in this thicket, this deer is looking directly at me. And I'm so I put my binoculars up, and I'm watching him, and I was like, man, there's no way Bridges is going to get this deer. The deer already a little spooked. And it took me a while. I was like, wait, I got my gun here in the corner. So I was able to get my gun, get it loaded. As this deer's turning, uh, I was able to take him. And uh, so, uh, like I said, he grossed. Man, I'd have to look because I don't pay too much attention to it. He grossed, I want to say he grossed 207, 208, something like that. But he uh, he was aged eight and a half years old, which is just unheard of. Um, like I said, I have had quite a history with that deer. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool, you know, that I, cause I remember whenever you told me, I think you'd text me, you know, like, I got this deer and then you sent me the picture when you found him. And it was just, it was really cool to see somebody who I've watched coon hunt a lot, deer hunt a lot, take a nice mature deer. Cause mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have had the patience to play the five-year waiting game. I mean, that, <laughs> well, a lot of that five-year waiting game was cause I spent in most of my time in the woods with the, with the boys, you know, and, and luckily Wyatt got old enough he could hunt. And then the next year in a different, the other side of the county, I was fortunate enough. I took one that he was a mature deer, probably one fifties. Uh, and I actually, I actually coon hunted that woods the night before I took him. So I had a pup in there coon hunting that woods the night before I took that one. And, you know, after I took that one, I was a rifle too. And, and I've bow hunted my whole life and I've shot some decent ones, nothing, nothing real crazy. And, uh, I just put the rifle down after that and I grabbed the recurve and I just didn't get the same enjoyment on them bucks anymore. And I thought if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it a little different by the method now. Yeah. I'm gonna start calling you Fred bear with your trick shots and all that <laughs> good stuff. It's, uh, well, you know, my, I had this work done to my back this year and it really slowed my coon hunting down, but one thing that didn't hurt was shooting this bow, and I got a little serious about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane, I sure appreciate you joining us on here today, man. It's been a great time. I, I'm glad we got you down. I know you, you were a little nervous about it at first, but I think you know I think it went really well, and, and it's good information for people to listen to because you know we need somebody who's passionate about both things and can understand both sides and and understand more than just the animals, but like the land management and everything like that. It, it takes somebody who is an outdoorsman, um, a woodsman, and can just talk about this stuff and and knows what they're talking about. So I appreciate you joining us on here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, man. All right, guys. Well, like I said, I hope you've enjoyed this this podcast with Shane. Um, if you haven't done so already, make sure you join us on Patreon. Um, you can join us on Patreon. That helps you out, helps us out uh, in many different forms. It gives you guys a ton of different perks. Um, if you want to go on over to houndsmanxp.com, we've got stuff over there for merch, tumblers, hats, shirts, dog boxes, uh, anything like that. Make sure you are looking up the, uh, initiative 91 for the Colorado deal that Chris has been talking about on his podcast. Do some research on that. Inform yourself on that guys. There is going to be a big push next year, uh, in Colorado specifically. And if stuff goes and goes south over there it's going to affect us even as coon hunters who primarily listen to this deep and lonely podcast it could affect us and it will affect us one day so take the time do some research on ballot initiative number 91 over that's going on over there in colorado uh shane if you got nothing else for us buddy i think we're going to wrap this one up i think i'm good bryce all right guys well thanks for listening to the deep and lonely podcast we'll catch you on the next one